admirable. Please uh, keep that passage open, uh, page 1131, and let's pray for God's help as we come to his word together. Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God, that you're not silent, that you want to communicate with us. And we pray this morning you would give us hearts and minds that want to receive and to hear from you, whether we're familiar with Christian things or whether we're still exploring them for ourselves. We pray you'd help us to understand and that we would leave here changed, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I really wish I had your faith. Has anyone ever said that to you? Maybe a, a family member who's not a Christian. Uh, they, maybe they were simply wishing out loud. If only I could have something to look forward to like they do beyond this life. Maybe then I'd have a little bit of their joy and their purpose as well. I really wish I had your faith. I really wish I had their faith. Have you ever said that? of others. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning. Uh, Maybe you're uh, not a Christian yet, but you're pretty close to becoming one. And you look at others and you think, if only my faith was a bit more like theirs. I've got a bit, but it feels quite inferior, quite inadequate. Their faith seems to motivate them to to serve Jesus and to love Jesus a lot, but, but mine is just kind of on the edge of my life so much of the time. I wish I had their faith. I really wish they had my faith. If any of us ever thought of that of others, maybe we've been Christians quite a while and we look at others who are younger in the faith or newer in the faith and we think if only their faith was more like mine, then we'd really start to go places as a church if we had the same sort of faith, my faith. What difference does faith make? Where should we see it affecting and changing our lives? Of course, at one level, faith is a private thing, isn't it? It's their faith, your faith, my faith. But it's never only meant to affect us privately. Real Christian faith always makes a difference in us together as well. And in some ways, that's the theme of this chapter, and in fact, much of the rest of the letter of Romans. What difference should faith make to these Christians in Rome? How will it affect both their hidden lives and their public lives? And I hope that that is a question we would ask of ourselves as well today. Because we don't want to be a church full of individuals who know the right things. We don't even want to just agree on the right things together. We want faith to change us. Last week we reached a high point in terms of uh, the doctrine of the Christian faith. You remember chapter 3 verses 21 to 26. Jesus Christ died as our substitute. He was the fulfillment of the great Old Testament sacrifice of atonement. He bore the full force of God's righteous anger against sin in his own body. And so when we trust him, we're justified, right with God, forever, fully forgiven, rescued from the slavery of sin. And maybe this morning we feel quietly confident in our faith. We know that stuff. And we look down a little bit at the immature faith or incomplete faith of others. Or maybe today our faith just feels inadequate and insecure and we can't help thinking, if only it was more like theirs. Maybe you're here this morning, you know you don't have faith yet, but you would like to. Whoever we are, wherever we are in our faith, we need to know how real Jesus-focused, justifying faith is meant to change us. And through this reading, Paul, I think, shows us two ways. Uh, First of all, He says, faith leaves no place for human pride. It should be up on the screen. No place for human pride. Verse 27 of chapter 3. Where then is boasting? 
It is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. Once again, as he has done before, Paul has the kind of self-consciously, morally upright, religious insider in his sights. The person who is quietly confident in their own religious achievements and their status, and they think, I'm just on a slightly higher rung than other people in the church. You see, they've been on the church database for years. They serve on at least three rotors. Their answers in Bible study are almost always right. They've recently increased their monthly standing order. And to be honest, they just look the part, and everyone knows it. But Jesus-focused faith, Paul says, leaves a person like that with nothing to boast about at all. He says to these Jewish Christians in Rome, he says, it doesn't matter how well you keep the law of Moses. He says to you and me today, it's irrelevant how well we keep those kind of legalistic expectations that we put upon ourselves or that others put upon us. It's not the law of being a good person that counts. It's the law that points us to faith. Verse 28, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Salvation is 100% faith and 0% works. But still, maybe we imagine the quietly confident religious insider saying under their breath, really? Not even 1% or 2%? what I've done? Am I really not allowed just to have a little bit of pride in one or two percent before God? And what Paul does is he backs up that equation, 100% faith, 0% works, with a few pieces of, of kind of key theological data. First of all, 29 to 31. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. This is what Jewish Christians learned before they could walk. There is only one God. It's monotheism, 101. But have they forgotten the implications of that? You see, the one God they believe in, he must act in the same way towards all people. If the God who rules the universe doesn't act consistently towards all people then he loses all integrity and he can't be trusted. And Paul says that's not a new thing. That, that faith merely confirms what the law was always intended to do. It was always intended to show people their sin and point people to their saviour. That's what he says in verse 31. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. The law was always intended to point people to their need of a saviour. You see, we may think of ourselves, well, a little bit of religious boasting, it, it's, it's mostly harmless. But actually, it is just one step away from idolatry, Paul says. If I've got even an ounce of religious pride in, in what I've done or who I am, then what is going on in my heart is a little bit of idolatry. I'm worshipping a God who treats me one way and other people differently. He, he treats me and my group according to a certain set of standards that I've created and everybody else with a higher set of standards that I've created for them. And such an attitude towards faith, Paul says, is, uh, well, well, it's deadly. It will lead to division and disorder and boasting. It creates a church that struggles to really love each other. It creates a church that can't actually, or that is going to really struggle to go out on mission together because it thinks we've got one God and they've got another God. 
But Jesus-focused faith leaves no place for human pride because we believe in one God who treats all people the same. And that is not a new thing. It's the way Paul has always acted. You see, verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Paul says to these potentially proud Jewish Christians in Rome that not even their great hero Abraham has anything to boast about at all. God promised him a biological son, didn't he? And he said, from that son, you will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. It sounded far-fetched, but Abraham believed. Verse 3, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. I wonder how you responded the last time you got paid. Okay, did you um, write an email to your boss? Thank you so much. That was really kind of you. Did you pick up the phone and say, you really, you, you just shouldn't, you shouldn't do that. It's just over the top. Of course you don't. Because they owe you. Your wages are owed to you. You have earned it. But when we trust in Jesus Christ, God gives us righteousness as a gift. We didn't work for it by doing something good, by being good enough people that somehow put God in our debt. We trusted him and then he gave the rest. That's what Abraham did. And it's what David did as well, according to verses 6 to 8. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Uh, as we've worked our way through Romans, we've come across a few kind of big Bible doctrines, and we've spent little moments in them as we've gone along. And there's a new, a new one here that we need to unpack. It's called the doctrine of imputed righteousness. It's as if God records our lives on a kind of spiritual accounting ledger. On one side, there is our debt column. It's absolutely full. And on the other side, there are our spiritual credits, and it's totally empty. And yet, extraordinarily, God does not count the debts that should be our debts. But what he does is he transfers Jesus' righteousness, his spiritual credits, into our side. There's a, a picture up on the screen, if we could uh, move on to that. Tim, thanks. Keep going. Next one. Next one. Brilliant. There we go. My sin, it's a great exchange. My sin is given to Jesus. Jesus' righteousness is given to me. All because he died on the cross in my place. That is imputed righteousness. My righteousness, my sin imputed to Jesus, given to him, credited to him. Jesus' righteousness credited, imputed to me. It's all down to him. Nothing due to me. I believe and then I receive, and, I leave, and there leaves no place whatsoever for any pride. Faith humbles us, humbles me, but it humbles us all together. Which is um, where Paul goes to next in, this, in the kind of data he's using to back up this formula, 100% faith, 0% grace. He says it's together, no place for human pride because God has one people, not two. Verse 10 under what circumstances was Abraham's righteousness credited to him? Was it 
after he was circumcised or before. It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. It's a very straightforward argument. God told Abraham to circumcise his male children in Genesis 17, but in Genesis 15, he is credited as righteousness because that is when he believes the promise. Circumcision is a sign 25 years later for Abraham that confirms God's promise, God's grace. God gives Abraham the gift of righteousness, not because of who he is, not because of what he's done, not because of some outward religious symbol that he has in his body, but because he trusts the promise. And so faith counts for everyone. Halfway through verse 11. So then, Abraham is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in other words, the Gentiles, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, Jewish Christians. Just as God is one God, so God has one people. Abraham is the spiritual father of all of them. Not unbelievers, not unbelieving Jews, not Muslims who claim to, that their faith is an Abrahamic faith. No, God's people are those who trust in his gift of righteousness, not their efforts. There is no place for human pride. And so we cannot look down on others and think, if only their faith was a little bit more like mine, if only they were a little bit more like me. There's only one God. He only has one people. He's always treated everyone the same. It's faith alone for all of us. So is there anything in ourselves we're rather proud of today? We'd never say it out loud, but just quietly in our own hearts, we're quite content to boast just one or two percent every now and then our history, our privileges, morality, knowledge, achievements. Maybe today we need to bring our boasts to God and we need to put them at the cross. Those things we're personally proud of, those things together as a church we think, here's a little trophy for our church here. Faith in this great doctrine of imputed righteousness humbles us and it unites us in our faith and it sends us out together to serve God. But what if pride isn't my issue? What if it's the flip side of pride? What if my issue is more to do with kind of insecurity and anxiety? And I think to myself, I wish I had their faith. Why can't my faith be more like theirs? You see, I get it, but I find it so hard to believe. And if only my faith was more like theirs, that'd be a bit better. I'm just quite anxious and insecure. Well, Paul comes to these questions in the rest of our reading. Faith changes us. Second, it gives us every promise for full assurance. Every promise for full assurance. Verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Paul sums up all the promises God made to Abraham in that extraordinary phrase, he would be heir of the world. Abraham's offspring will rule the world as God originally intended human beings to do. It's like Jesus said to his disciples, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The spiritual descendants of Abraham, you and me, if we're trusting Jesus today, one day will rule over the new heavens and the new earth. That is an extraordinary promise. Can you imagine? 
But we can be absolutely assured that that promise is true because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. At verse 14. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. If the promise relies on me keeping God's law, it is an absolutely useless promise. Because the law makes me worthy of judgment. It's as if you go for a walk in a beautiful garden. Here we are, a nice picture on the screen of a, a garden there. And, and the, all of as you walk around the garden, there's all these little signs, please keep off the grass, don't go in the flower beds. But as we wander around the garden, we think, actually, I want to take a shortcut across that nicely mowed lawn. Or I'd love to just to not just look at the flowers in that flower bed, but just kind of sit amongst them and enjoy the, the smell and, and the sights of the flowers. Won't that be nice? Of course, it would never be right just to wander across the lawn or just to go and sit in the flower bed. But the thing is, as soon as I cross the sign, as soon as I ignore the law which is written there in front of me on that little sign, do not walk on the grass, then I become a whole lot more guilty of breaking the law. I become a transgressor. I break the law knowingly. That's what it's like for the, for the Jewish person who depended on the law. They are making their faith all about their own law-keeping. And God's promise, Paul says, if you're doing that, is not worth the paper it's written on. You can have no assurance. But wonderfully, the promise doesn't come through the law. It comes through grace, verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. It doesn't matter how well a Jewish Christian in Rome keeps the law. It doesn't matter how good a job you have done today at being a good person for God. If it did, we could never be confident that we would ever get to heaven. What matters is who we believe, not what we've done. Just ask Abraham. Verse 16. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Abraham didn't ignore the hard facts and create some sort of delusional fantasy faith in his mind. He believed that the one true God was more than capable of doing what looked impossible from his perspective. After all, he'd done it before, hadn't he? God had created everything out of nothing. And so Abraham thought to himself, that great, powerful God who made everything out of nothing, well, he could do the same again with me and, my, and Sarah. Verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Paul isn't airbrushing um, all the kind of low points of Abraham's life at this point. We were looking at the life of Abraham last summer, and he had a, some pretty big fails. But so do we, don't we? Paul knows that the consistent direction of Abraham's life is faith. He kept trusting God, and that is what counts. A quarter of a century went by, 
but he kept on holding on. And he thought, not even Sarah's dead womb, not even my 100-year-old body can stop God from giving us a biological son. Because he knew that even though he was weak, that his wife was weak, God is not. Verse 21, he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. And God is still the God of almighty creative power today. We really can have full assurance that he will give us his gift of righteousness. In fact, we can be even more sure than Abraham and Sarah were sure. Because God has revealed his power to us in an even more extraordinary way than he did through the birth of Isaac. Verse 23. The words it was credited to him were not written, sorry, were written not to him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Paul doubles back to the, that little passage we looked at last week in 3, 21 to 26, all about the cross. Jesus died for our sins. But now he adds a new note. He says he was raised to life for our justification. What he's saying here is that Easter Sunday proves that Good Friday worked, that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted by God. Easter Sunday is the cast-iron guarantee that we will never need to face the death sentence we deserve to face because Jesus died it for us three days before. And maybe we find it hard to believe today that we really are 100% right with God. We may have been a Christians a long time, but we still feel quite inferior. And we think, okay, well, maybe they are 100% right with God, but on a good day, I might manage 85%. Maybe today you think, I'd quite like to be a Christian, but I could never be sure that I could have the sort of faith that other people have. Either way, I wonder if we are not yet a Christian but thinking, if only I could have their faith, or if we are a Christian thinking, I just can't have enough, I wonder if it's possible that we are just holding on to that little 1% or 2% of our own goodness and we need to learn to let go of it. Because as soon as we, we hold on to even a little bit of our own works, then we, it's as if we kind of hold the assurance, the spiritual assurance God wants us to have underneath the waterline. And before... Before too long, if, if that is us, if we're insecure in our faith, the ugly fruits of that will start appearing in our lives. I'll just do stuff to get myself noticed by God and by others. Or I'll burn myself out by just doing too much stuff so that God sees, oh, what a wonderful person that one is. Or I'll get bitter towards those Christians whose lives just on the outside look more impressive than mine. Or I won't get involved at all because I'll think serving Jesus, that's not for me. It's for them. Only with 100% grace, 100% God's gift of righteousness to us and 0% ours, can we know for sure that I have nothing to prove and nothing to hide. Not to or from God, not to or from my Christian brother or sister. So today, maybe as we come to the Lord's table later, we need to quietly say in our hearts, God, here's the 1% or 2% that I'm holding on to. I don't want to hold on to it anymore. I want 100% assurance from you. Let me just finish briefly with a trailer for next week. Jesus died for us. We, can have, we have every promise for full assurance. His righteousness is counted as ours. 
Our sin is counted to him on the cross. And so there is no place for human pride. And together as a church, we are humbled, we are united by faith alone. But here's the surprise as we move on to next week's passage. We can be proud. We can boast. Not in ourselves, but in him. Let me read to you verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Therefore, in other words, this is the consequence of everything we've been thinking about so far, says Paul. Justification by faith alone, by Christ's death in your place alone, no boasting, full assurance. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That is where we are, God, Paul says, in the sight of God. And, and so what? We boast in the hope of the glory of God. What a wonderful place to be. Should bow our heads and pray. So, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would humble us and take away our pride. And we pray you would assure us and give us great confidence in your love for us and in the standing we have before you today. And we therefore pray that we would boast not in ourselves, but in you and in all that you have done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're going to continue in prayer. Sam's going to lead us.